We've been discussing the wrath of God for some time now in Revelation. I thought it would be good for us to take a little detour and look at a passage that we all need to have settled in our hearts in light of the wrath of God. And on top of that, that gives me another couple weeks to study Revelation 7. Very important because as we come into this passage in Revelation 7, it is a very... I want to try to do the whole chapter, and that means I need an extra couple weeks. But this book and this chapter in Romans I thought would be very appropriate for all of us in light of our circumstances and in light of the wrath to come. We need to have settled, and I would suggest that verses 21 to 26 of Romans chapter 3, you could argue are the most important chapters in the entire Bible. These (coughs) chapters reveal a truth that I would argue are the most important, the most important doctrine for all of us. We must have this solidified in our hearts and our minds in light of God's just judgment. Where's our hope in light of the just and righteous judge to come? Today I want to cover this passage, again, arguably one of the most important, and see where our hope is found in light of our own wickedness and God's justice to come. It could be argued that if there was no other passage that you ever got when I was preaching, if I'm preaching, you got nothing else, this one is a must. You must understand this passage. And I would suggest to you that if I don't explain it well enough, I would suggest going to MacArthur's website and Piper's website and every other good preacher you know, Mark Dever, and listen to the sermons on Romans 3, 21 to 26. Because... This passage is crucial for life. It is how uh, we're saved. What justification is all about. It is the most important doctrine next to maybe Christology and theology proper, who God is and what Christ has done. But they kind of play right into it, as we will see. It's a similar question. It answers the similar question... As people have said throughout history, the multitudes asked John the Baptist, what shall we do upon his preaching of the wrath of God to come and the Messiah? Uh, The rich young ruler asked, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And the Jewish people listening to Peter at Pentecost said, brethren, what shall we do? Uh, The jailer in Philippi after the earthquake says, what must I do to be saved? That's what's answered in 3.21 to 26. In light of God's wrath, in light of God's justice, what should we do? To set into a context a little bit, look at 118. In 118, Paul begins to explain in Romans the plight of humanity. That God is a just and righteous God. And then in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In 118, he begins to build the case against humanity. Who is condemned? He starts with, in 118 to 132, the unhearing, unbelieving believer or unbelievers throughout all of the world. Those who Know God intellectually, know that there is a God that created everything, but reject Him and suppress Him, and are therefore turned over to their sinful lusts. 
He starts with them and says, they're condemned. Then in 2, 1 through 10, he talks about the unrepentant person who may be morally good on the outside, but are not changed within, and thus they're wicked on the inside also. In other words, they look good on the outside. They're the good people, the moralists. Then in 2, 11 through 29, so we've got two condemned people. In 2, 11 through 29, the Jewish people who have God's law, they have the uh, father Abraham in their, in their lineage, and who have followed some of the law on the outward at least, externally, they're condemned too because their hearts aren't right with God. And then in 3, 9, 1 through 19, he summarizes it and condemns everyone. <laughs> Who's going to face wrath of God? Everybody. Everybody deserves it. In verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So ultimately the verdict is what? Guilty. Everybody in this room, guilty. The verdict is, if the wrath of God were to come and you didn't have a provision... You would face it. Guilty. But I'm a good man. I'm a good person. Guilty. Condemned. Everybody is condemned. There is no hope in and of yourself. That's what he's getting at. In, three, in 118 all the way to 320. The verdict on mankind is guilty. Deserving of God's eternal wrath in hell. Everyone is silenced. We have no defense. We all stand guilty before God. Robert Mount states this about Paul now. He says, After building a case against all of humanity, showing their universal sinfulness and therefore their universal need of salvation, Paul then spells out the only way for them to be brought into a right standing with God. Ladies and gentlemen, verses 321 to 26 shows the narrow gate. It's the small way. This is the only way, the only way to avoid the wrath of God. I don't know about you. I want to know what 321 to 26 means then, right? And I want to embrace it in my heart. I better get it. This is the only way. This is the narrow gate. This is the only right way for us to go. Where's our hope? Let's read our passage, 321 to 25. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this great message. We pray that you will help us to understand it. Father, we pray that we will continue to run to it, that we will continue to trust in Christ. Oh God, please help us now as we look at this passage to be reminded of the glory of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.
Again, today we're going to see where our hope is found in light of our condemned status. You've got a point there, the main propositional statement for this message is this. We are going to see today that our only hope, you can write that in your notes if you're following along in your notes, that our only hope is found in the righteousness of God, which is graciously given or granted to us through faith in Christ alone. Boy, that would fail homiletics class, wouldn't it, guys? Too long a proposition statement. But that's why I put it in your notes. You ready? I'll say it again. This is what we're getting at. We are going to see today that our only hope, did you get that? Only hope, is found in the righteousness of God, which is graciously granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Alone. That's what we're going to find today. So let's look and examine our hope. First, notice, our hope is found in the revealed righteousness of God, not in ourselves. Our hope is found in the revealed righteousness of God, not in ourselves. In verse 21 it says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Our hope is found in the righteousness of God, but notice it starts, but now apart from the law. The, the p- first point here under this the, um, introductory point is we cannot achieve the righteous standard of God by perfect obedience to the law. That's what he's getting at. But, but now apart from the law. It kind of summarizes verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. What does he mean? We can't achieve a right standing with God by perfect obedience to the law. It is impossible. You cannot obey enough in order to earn God's favor. MacArthur states it this way. Paul is declaring that the righteousness of God given to believers is entirely apart from obedience to any law. Even God's own revealed law. God's righteousness is in no way on human achievement. Did you get that? Make sure you get it. No way on human achievement. On anything that man can do in his own power. Obedience to God's law can never be perfect. And therefore can never save. No matter how much good and how good you look on the outside, you can't save yourself. You can't achieve this righteousness of God. This is why the gospel, as MacArthur says, is so offensive to natural man. Put real simple, you're not good. And you can't be. And you can't be righteous enough to earn God's favor. Period. Mounts at from a human standpoint, and by nature, nature, people are legalists. This is what we are naturally tending to do, folks. The plan was radical for God. It includes it excludes anything and everything that people by themselves might attain that might do to attain righteousness. The righteousness of God provides 
has, or provide, God provides has its origin in what God did, not in what people may accomplish. It's received, not earned. It depends on faith, not meritorious acts. God justifies the ungodly, not the well-intentioned. That's a great quote. What makes this good news is that no one would have come up with a plan that excluded their own contributions. Man wouldn't do it. That's why there's such a tendency to put some kind of value in the person that God declares right. To find something. Well, he believed. He had a little bit of a good heart, so he believed. And so therefore, the credit goes to the person. No! God set it up so that there is no goodness in me that earns his right standing. None. None at all. Why am I going to heaven? Why do I avoid the wrath? Not because of me. It's all God. God did it. That's the point. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Well, it was manifested in me? No. It was manifested by God. And who? Christ. We'll talk about this as we go on. The tendency of the human heart is to elevate our value before God. Would you not disagree with that? We think of ourselves as relatively good people. To see ourselves as good people and deserving of God's favor. This is completely wrong. And you miss the path if you think that way. If you at any point say, my value and why God credits me righteous is because I'm something good or I did something good, or I have something good in me, you've missed it. It's nothing about you. However, notice the righteousness of God has been manifested. It has been revealed. Apart from the law, the perfect righteous ways of God has been manifested or revealed. Who is that? When was this? This is Christ. It's a perfect tense verb here. Has been manifested means a completed action in the past that has an ongoing result. Who came? Christ did. That's the righteousness that has been revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we will see. His life and death are the revelation of God's righteousness. The appearance of Christ has made a permanent impression on the earth. Literally, when he came, the world was changed forever. Notice also the righteousness of God has been revealed and been validated by the Old Testament. The righteousness of God has been validated by the Old Testament, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is an answer and another way of saying the whole Old Testament. The Old Testament points to the total inability of mankind. If you don't believe me, read the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to the necessity of God's righteousness because nobody in there can do it. The Old Testament points to the need of a Messiah, doesn't it? Who was the greatest king in Israel ever? We could argue, but David? I would argue with you, Bathsheba. What about Bathsheba? What about sending her husband up to the front lines to be murdered? So he's a murderer? The greatest king in all of Israel, David, a murderer, an adulterer. 
No. It screams, we need a king. We need a Messiah. We need righteousness. Even the greatest of kings needs a king, needs a Messiah, needs a Savior, needs God's righteousness. Hendrickson, is Paul presenting a new doctrine? Something new, never heard of? Of course not. On the contrary, he's speaking about a righteousness attested by the law and the prophets. This saving righteousness has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is continually confirmed by the word of God. I think it's interesting here. Folks, get this. The Bible screams, we need the righteousness of God. Nobody has any value except in Christ. So, our hope is found in the revealed righteousness of God. Yet this righteousness is not attainable in ourselves. So we still need to understand, how do we acquire it? We can't achieve it on our own, can we? Can you achieve it? No. So, we still need to understand how it's acquired. That's the second aspect of hope. Our hope is found in the righteousness of God acquired through faith. Our hope is found in the righteousness of God acquired through faith. In verse 22 it says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The saving righteousness of God is acquired only one way. Through faith. I'm going to kind of go back and give you a little bit of a definition of righteousness. I didn't do that. The righteousness of God is this. God's moral perfection revealed in his holy standards and actions. It's God's ways. It is his right behavior. His perfect sinless behavior. To give you an idea, the righteousness of God is what God does all the time. Righteousness. He's right always. This is the standard by which we are judged. Think about that for a second. We have a tendency to do this. Think about it. I'm better than that guy. We ask that if a person says, are you going to heaven? You say, well, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than that guy over there. I'm better than him. Hey, had a discussion with a relative one time, just recently, or a couple months back, and I said, you know, I'm just real concerned about where you're going when you die. I said, oh, don't worry about me, Michael. I'm a good person. There was this guy standing outside this restaurant or outside this gas station. He came up to me and asked me for some money. And I, I went inside and bought him some food. Gave it to him. See, I'm a good person. Ladies and gentlemen, the standard by which we are measured is God's righteousness, not one another's. When we stand there, it's appointed by, by God for every man to die and then comes judgment. The standard is what? Perfection. God's righteousness. How many of you have it? Trick question. Are you perfect? You're required to. Everything that you do short of perfection and <coughs> righteousness, you're going to face judgment for you must be perfect to avoid hell. That's that's frightening. Everybody in here should be going, I'm not! I'm dead! 
I'm in trouble. That's the righteousness that's required. And it's been revealed. And it wasn't by us. Notice second, our hope is found in the righteousness of God acquired through faith. The saving righteousness of God is acquired only one way. Through faith alone in Christ alone. God's righteousness is acquired through faith is what it says at the beginning. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. Through faith here. We acquire God's righteousness through our own personal faith in Christ. Yes, we believe. We must believe. But there's a neat little distinction made here in the Greek. It's interesting. If one letter was different, one letter was different, it would be totally, totally, it would turn everything, we'd all be Arminians. (laughs) One letter was turned. One change. If it was, I have the righteousness of God on account of faith, for the reason of faith, dia and accusative, if we had it on account of or for the reason, for this reason, I have it for this reason, it would miss the whole point of the passage. Instead, it says, through faith. There's a difference. One of them is, our faith is the middleman. Whereas the other one, it's all the basis of it. My faith is the basis that God gives it. I have this faith, so God gives it. But the other one is, is that it's just the middleman. Our faith is the middleman of why God gives it to us. It's how the vehicle by which God decredits us righteous. I trust in Him, and even the way that this is worded is it makes it seem like and implies that it's all about God even in our faith. That our faith, our trusting in Him is just the vehicle by which God credits our righteousness. It's not on account of. It's not for the reason of. The emphasis here is being overly emphasized. We receive God's righteousness not ultimately because of our merit. Rather, God grants us His righteousness through our faith. We just receive it. We receive the gift. As in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we even know that our faith is a gift from God, right? By His regenerating work in our hearts, we, the middleman, our faith is even because of God. Why are we credited righteous, folks? Because of grace. We'll see that more in a second. So before we all exalt in our hope or our, over our faith, saving us, we need to remember, ultimately... The reason for our right standing with God is His saving work in us. As Mark will show tonight in his um, discussion of Nebuchadnezzar again, there is no room for pride in our position. Get that. Make sure you get this and you'll see it again tonight. There is no room for pride in our position. Why am I right with God? Answer? God. That's it. Why am I not going into Revelation 7? Why am I not going into Revelation 6? Why am I not going to face the wrath of God? Answer, God. This includes even our position as saved through faith in Christ. So we acquire God's righteousness through faith alone. 
This faith, this through faith, is saving faith. It includes these elements. You need to get these. Knowledge, approval, and personal trust. Knowledge, approval, and personal trust. Genuine faith in Christ includes the mind, the emotion, and the will. It's not just an intellectual assent. I got the facts. Everybody in here, I'm fairly sure, know that Jesus came and died on a cross and rose from the dead. You got those facts right there, right? No problem. But knowing facts does not save you. Knowing facts does not acquire righteousness. Knowledge, emotion, and will. Genuine faith involves a new commitment of the heart. The heart has to stop going, I'm going to get there by what I do. And has to say, I have no hope except you. Christ. The heart has to be completely surrendered. I'm nothing. That's genuine faith. Faith is depending on Jesus Christ and his works, not your own. Faith is commitment to Christ because of who he is and what he's done. Notice the object of genuine faith, saving faith, is Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. The object of faith must be Christ alone. It says it in Jesus Christ. Again, another emphasis of the Reformation Sola Christo. Another major tenet. Genuine faith in Christ is what acquires God's righteousness. Genuine saving faith is not faith in your faith. Does that make sense? Genuine saving faith is not faith in your faith. Why do I say that? It's pretty important. Because you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. Why are you going to heaven? Because of my faith. What's wrong with that statement? The ground of your salvation is faith? No. The ground of your faith or your salvation is who? Christ. Christ. Why am I going to heaven? Christ. Ask me the question. Is it because you did something good? Is it because you're a good guy? Because you're a preacher? No. My only hope is Christ. His righteousness. In Christ. My object of my faith is trust in Him. Genuine saving faith is not faith in your goodness. Genuine saving faith is not faith in your own self-reformation. I'm going to clean myself up today. I'm going to become a good person. I'm going to be perfect like Micah on campus. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to be this kind of person. That does not get you the righteousness of God. It's faith in Christ. Your only hope is Christ. Genuine saving faith has its object, Jesus Christ alone, not self. And by the way, it's not Jesus plus self. It's Jesus. That's it. No other hope. Him alone. That's why in Philippians 3, look at that real quick. 
make y'all move around a little bit so you don't fall asleep. As you're making your way over to Philippians 3. I was encouraged by Mark the other day. He said, hey, if we put people to sleep, it's a good thing. We're in good company. The Apostle Paul did it. You can read about that in Acts. <coughs> now just... Verse three or verse seven of three, Paul speaking of this same thing. After listing out all the things he had done in his early days, verse seven. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I had counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having righteousness on my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Christ, right? That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Where's righteousness come, folks? Real simple. God and his faith in Christ that acquires that. God's righteousness is acquired, see, through faith for everyone who believes. God's righteousness is for everyone, as we see in our passage here, for all those who believe. There's no distinction between one believer and the other. There is no difference among believers. Every single person who genuinely is committed to Christ and is believing in his, their mind, their heart, their will, they're committed to Christ, have been credited the righteousness of God. This is an amazing concept. Oh, do we put people on higher levels and things like this, don't we? We look, and folks, I want to give you some amazing news for you. The most glorious Christian you've ever seen the most glorious and the weakest Christian that was genuinely a believer, now that's a key point, genuine a believer, were both declared righteous and all of their sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. They're righteous. That's a wild thought. What an amazing gift. D, God's righteousness is required through faith for all who are believers. <coughs> This is an important point to kind of develop the idea of what faith is, genuine faith is. Notice at the end, for all those who believe, that's a present tense, it's a continuous faith. You know he's the Lord and Savior, and it keeps going. Your heart's been changed, and you continue to trust in Christ alone. That's why I, 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 I venture to say I, I, I'm very concerned with some of the um, fringe uh, churches out there today that say, well, I need to be baptized so that I'm saved. What's wrong with this? Well, they say, okay, Jesus died for my sin. Now I need to do this <coughs> in order for me to really be saved. What's that do? It makes about what you do. You still put some kind of achievement in yourself. There is nothing you can do. Your righteous status is only found in Christ, in Christ alone. So, God's righteousness is acquired through faith for all who are believing. There's no loophole for any person. Paul then digresses in verse 23. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God again. What's his point? It doesn't matter who we are, what ethnicity we come from, who our parents are, how much money we have or don't have, or where we live. It doesn't matter any of those things. Everyone needs God's righteousness. Everyone. Mount stated, No one can stand before God on the basis of personal merit. All have sinned and in so doing have fallen short of the glory of God. Hendrickson states, All people have sinned and fall short or are falling short of God's glory. The point is, is that we're sinners. We have no hope outside of God's grace. Again, this means all need this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. All of sin, all of humanity without exception. Except for one, right? And who would that be? Christ, the God-man. Have sin. All have missed the mark of God's right standard. And all are presently falling short of God's glory. We all need God's righteousness. And we will or we will all face God's wrath. This brings us to the next and final glorious hope we have in light of God's just wrath. Notice, our hope is found in being justified by God. Oh, I love this little phrase, verse 24. This is the glorious doctrine here, folks. Underline your Bible. This is what it's about. Being justified. Being justified. Being justified, folks, get it, please get this, is an act of God for all those who genuinely believe in Christ. Justified here means to be declared right with God or to be declared righteous by God. All who genuinely have trusted in Christ have been declared righteous by God. MacArthur states, Justification is God's declaration that all demands of the law are fulfilled on behalf of the believing sinner through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification is wholly forensic or legal transaction. It changes the judicial standing of the sinner before God. In justification, God imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to the believer's account, then declares the redeemed one, fully righteous. How many of you, now ask the question again, how many of you are righteous? <laughs> if you've genuinely repented and trusted in Christ, God has declared you righteous. But I don't deserve it! Good, I'm glad you think that. <laughs> but I'm wicked! I know Christ is my hope. Trust in Him. That's righteousness credited to you. Again, this is a legal term for God attributing His righteousness to our account. Piper states, Justification has both the sense of pardon and imputed perfection. More than just pardoned, but pardoned and righteous. Again, here's the emphasis is on God again. Look at it. Verse 24. Being justified. That's passive. Again, what's the point? God makes the legal declaration. <laughs> Again, 
if you got this right, you're not going to stand up and go and say, I'm a good person. <laughs> when we stand before God, it won't be, I'm righteous because of me. It will never be that. I'm not guilty by my works would never be a phrase that came out of our lips, would it? I'm righteous because of Christ. That's what we will be saying. And that's what God declares when a believer trusts in Christ. When a sinner trusts in Christ. Third, justification is a gracious gift. Notice it says it again. Being justified as a gift. It's a gracious gift. It's a double emphasis. Unmerited aspect of this declaration. Being justified is a gift. Being justified is a grace gift. Again, we can't earn justification. In fact, we don't merit being justified. One can see just how gracious God is in that he takes wicked, wretched sinners like myself and you and declares them righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I would suggest this is one doctrine, this one doctrine has got to be my favorite in all the Bible. Why? Because it's my hope. It's my only hope. We have no hope. How many of you have sinned this week? Everybody understands that you've sinned, not that you delighted in it. You understand you didn't honor God and thank Him and give glory to Him every minute of the day, most of the time, or not most of the time, but a lot of the time maybe. You were dishonoring Him, complaining. So, what do you do with all that sin? You can't do anything about it. But Christ did. Oh, this, is, this is what keeps us going, isn't it? I also would say this doctrine is never preached enough. I think it has to be preached more. Otherwise we turn this thing, we can turn everything upside down on its head and we can become legalists. We can make it all about what we do that earns God's favor. I also think a proper understanding of this doctrine will lead to a holy life. You hear me? Contrary to the, what people might say, well, if I'm declared right, I can do whatever I want to, right? No! If you're declared right and you know it, you don't want to do anything but obey. That's why Paul says in Romans 6.1, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be emphatic. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If I died with Christ, why in the world would I want to sin? If I know I've been declared right and died with Him and my sins have been paid for and I'm alive with Him and my, His righteousness is credited to my account, why would I want to do anything other than obey? That's what He means. You get the doctrine of justification and your lives will be changed forever. <laughs> when we forget the doctrine of justification, we either make it about our meritorious works to earn God's favor, or 
We just totally ignore the cross and get guilty and depressed and walk around feeling like I'm a failure. And there is a sense where, where we are sin, sinners, but that doesn't mean we should walk around not enjoying the righteousness that's been credited to our account. It's a, such a fine line. Listen, folks. If you don't understand the doctrine of justification, you're either going to walk around moping, guilty all the time, thinking, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, this is horrible, I'm no good, I'm wretched. Or, you're going to walk around going, well, I'm better than I was, I'm getting better, I want to be better than him, I'm better than her, I'm okay here, I do this better, you've missed justification. And the heart tends to do that. Your righteousness is found in Christ. That's why this doctrine should be preached. Notice lastly, concerning his hope and our justification, it's brought about through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption, as Liam Morris states, is a word rich with meaning. It was used to bind back prisoners of war, slaves, and condemned criminals by the payment of a ransom. Again, redemption is the setting free of captives by paying a price. The freedom from sin and its consequences are found in Christ. Jesus brought, bought our freedom and now we are his own. And through this redemption we have been declared righteous by his grace. One commentator explained it so well. The redemptive work of God through his son Jesus Christ is so amazing it's the most amazing event in history, in the history of the universe. Never would such a plan have risen in the human mind. God bringing a just sentence of death upon all, for all of sin, he provides a sinless sacrifice, his only son, to atone for the unrighteousness of the wayward human race. From God's standpoint, forgiveness is freely offered all that remains is for people to accept the forgiveness. The obligation is to believe, to trust in the redemptive work of Christ. The good news is good only to those who receive it, and God offers his righteousness to those who will receive it. And not as something to supplement their own good works, but as a gift that alone can place them in a right standing with God. All of this hope is bound up in the glorious plan of redemption in Christ. Folks, we have confident expectation that we can have a righteousness of God credited to our account. We can have confidence that we are right with God through faith in Christ alone. We can have confident expectation that we have been graciously given the gift of justification. All of this is accomplished in Christ who, as Paul states, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This word, propitiation, is such a glorious word. It's the work of Christ that provides the righteousness of God. The propitiation, Damaris states, propitiation can, connotes the act of turning aside the wrath of an offended God by means of an appropriate sacrifice. Did you get that? The turning aside of the wrath of God, an offended God by means of an appropriate sacrifice. 
Thus, the propitiation in Christ's death serves to cover the sinner and thus avert the, God, the wrath of God over their sin. John Stott explains this propitiation of God's wrath in the Son's death well. We'll close with this. It is God himself who is who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself, who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself, in the person of his Son, died for the propitiation of our sins. The turning side of the wrath of God. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger. By bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule. Only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. Horatius Bonnard summarizes so well in this glorious doctrine, this glorious doctrine of justification. Listen to these words. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my <laughs> prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work can save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Only Christ. He's your only hope. And he's a glorious hope. Let's trust in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for Christ. We have no value in ourselves, God. Our hearts are prone to sin. We trust in Christ, your glorious gift. Our righteousness is not found in ourselves. Oh God, help this doctrine to be quick to be remembered, not as an excuse for sin, but as a motivation for righteousness. Spirit, work in our hearts to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand this doctrine. That we are declared right with you. <coughs> God, thank you for this glorious truth. Help us, Lord, now to serve you and be who we are in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. didn't get all the notes, I got them up here. You're welcome to come up and look afterwards. But it was good to see y'all. Please pray for Brenda and I as we are uh, going to be driving starting this morning or tomorrow morning at 3 o'clock. Um, meditate on these truths, folks. I, I would strongly advise you to memorize 321 to 26. It would be a good, good study for you. If you have any questions, you're welcome to come up afterwards. If you don't know how you're saved, I'm still up here. <laughs> if you didn't quite get it, I want to talk to you some more. Okay? Let's pray. One more time, we'll go. Father, again, take us now. Use us for your glory and your honor.
your power. Help us to proclaim this glorious gospel to the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.